Today's reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, which you can find on pages 1, 2, 3, 3 of the Church Bibles. Revelation 1, chap- Revelation 1 verse 1. Excuse me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If God were to write you a letter, write us a letter as church family here this morning, what might you want or expect him to say? What might you want or expect him to put in that letter? What answers might you like him, what questions might you like him to answer? Today we're beginning a new preaching series in the book of the Revelation. But what sort of a book is it? Some of us might have some idea, some of us may have steered are clear of it, thinking it's too complicated. Others of us may have read it a number of times. But what sort of a book is it as we begin? And where has it come from? Well, as Molly read for us, it's quite clear who wrote it, isn't it? There in verse 4, John, he's writing a letter. That's the layout it takes. He's writing it to seven churches in the province of Asia. That's modern-day Turkey. And over the next couple of months together, we're going to be looking at what is written to each of those churches, which we find in chapters 2 and 3. But just as we don't start with those letters in chapter 2, so the revelation doesn't actually start with John. I guess we're all familiar with delivery companies by now and how you can trace the journey of your parcel, see where it is at any given time, still with a sender or in transit, a sorting hub, or perhaps it's out for delivery. Well, with this book we can trace its journey to us from the first few verses. It's journey to us via John, because John is not the source of the book. Come back to me with verse 1, and we see that this book is actually from Jesus, who was given it by God the Father. God the Father gave it to Jesus. Jesus then made it known via an angel, a messenger, that's what the word means, to John, who then wrote it down, so that it can be then read 
and heard by us today. Now, because it's come from God originally, that explains why in verse 2 it's called the word of God, not just the words of John. And also there in verse 3, prophecy, which is the proclamation of the mind of God, what God is thinking. Now, that can be future things, but it isn't always. But prophecy is all but always by nature, the proclaiming, the telling what God is thinking. It's not just the thoughts of John. It's not John's revelation. It's God's. And notice who it's about. It is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation, then, is an authoritative book. It couldn't be more authoritative, could it? It's from God himself. And it's also deeply relevant. It's from God, verse 1, but it's for you and I to show his servants what must soon take place. God's servants, well, they are followers of Jesus. So let's come back to that question again. What sort, of a, what sort of a book is this? Well, as I say, it is in the form of a letter. It's addressed to the churches. But as the name, says at the very, as the name suggests, it is a revelation. First heading for this morning. It's God's revelation about Jesus for us to take to heart. See, this book is not John's imagination or speculation. It's not John's rationalization or improvisation. It's God's revelation. Now, the Greek word where we get revelation from is where we get the English word apocalypse. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, maybe you think of uh, future things or end times. Maybe you think of zombie invasions. All of those are wrong when it comes to this book. Because the word simply means in Greek an unveiling or an uncovering, a pulling back of the curtain so you can see what lies behind. A revelation then is a revealing what was previously hidden or obscured, revealing to us things that otherwise would remain unseen. And some of it is about the future, what will happen So that helps us keep an eternal perspective, doesn't it? Knowing what is still to come, remembering where history is heading. It's good for that to be revealed to us. But much of the book also gives us God's viewpoint, heaven's viewpoint, if you like, on our present circumstances. So if you just look to the very bottom of the, uh, no, over the page, sorry, uh, end of the chapter, verse 19, John is told to write down what is now and what will take place. So it is relevant for us now, because of what is happening now, as well as helping us know what will take place in the future. So it'll be super helpful for us as we work through the first few chapters to be able to see the world from God's perspective, rather than just our own. That will help us make sense of what we experience now, but always in light of what is guaranteed to happen in the future. So the book of Revelation, like any book in the Bible actually, is like putting on a pair of spectacles, isn't it? That enables us to see ourselves, see Jesus Christ, see God, and see our world clearly. See, without it, without what is revealed in this book, well, you and I could not know the answers to those things. We would be none the wiser, and that would be a great shame, because did you notice in verse 3... Molly has been blessed this morning by reading this book to us. But she's not the only one to be blessed. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. 
Now, these are words that we don't find in any other New Testament letter, interestingly. But in our reading it, in our hearing it, and in our taking to heart, there is a promised blessing from God. If we hear it, keep it, do what it says, we are blessed. That's the promise. I take it that means that this book is given in order to us, for us to understand it. After all, our hearing and our taking to heart requires our understanding. If we don't understand what's going on, how can we possibly be expected to do it? So as we read Revelation, we should expect clarity, not confusion. The book of Revelation, it's not a puzzle to be pondered or a mystery to be mulled. It's not spiritual Sudoku, no. It is to be read and heard and taken to heart, put into practice. Now, for sure, if you were to go home and read the whole book, there would be some things that sound strange to our ears. The the made it known back there in verse 1 is literally signified or signified. One of the means by which things are made known in Revelation is through signs, symbols, visions, often with an Old Testament background to them. So if we read this book, we should expect it at times to be highly symbolic, but remembering that the symbols stand for real truth and real things. Now, one such use of symbolism in the book is numbers, in the sense that certain numbers symbolise certain things. And we have this even in our verses for today, the number seven, which we'll get to in just a mo. But we need to be clear, as we embark on this journey, remember this book is an authoritative revelation from God. And it's just as relevant for us today as for the first hearers. We too are to hear and take to heart what it says. It's God's revelation about Jesus for us to take to heart. Now, as I just mentioned, it's it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. We need to remember that. But in verses 4 to 9, John begins his letter. It's in a standard way, from John to the churches, followed by a greeting. But did you notice John gets incredibly carried away as he addresses the envelope, as it were? And in doing so, he paints for us a glorious picture. It's a family portrait, a royal family portrait of God the Father, Spirit and Son. So look with me at verse 4. We're reminded that God the Father is and was and is to come. That is, God is total. He's eternal. He's almighty. It's a great corrective to when we start to think that maybe the universe revolves around little old me. Well, I need to remember God is and was and is to come. But we also have the seven spirits before the throne, which I think the footnote is correct. If you look at the very bottom of the page, the sevenfold spirit is how we should best understand that. See, seven, this is one of those revelation numbers. It's deeply symbolic. Actually, in the whole of the Bible, seven is an important number where it signifies completeness or perfection or wholeness. So the sevenfold spirit is the perfect spirit, the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that's confirmed for us because the idea of grace and peace in verse four coming from God the Father, God the Son and seven other spirits. Well, that just wouldn't fit, would it, with anything else in the Bible? Actually, it wouldn't make sense in the light of the rest of Scripture. So in verse 4 then, it is the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit, who proceeds from the throne of God 
bringing grace and peace, equipping the churches. And I think that's the point. See, the sevenfold spirit is completely sufficient, wholly sufficient for the seven churches who themselves symbolize God's whole church on earth. Now, what do we do with that? Well, it's wonderful, actually, isn't it? We need fear, no shortage of the Holy Spirit. He's the sevenfold spirit, utterly sufficient for our needs here as a church, as he is for every church. But the focus in this opening really is on Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest that's going to be very helpful to us this morning because we all need to be reminded who Jesus really is, don't we? What he has done, what he will do. And we need to be reminded of that regularly. James Smart was a pastor in the US who wrote a number of years ago, without the Bible, the remembered Christ becomes the reimagined Christ, shaped by the religiosity and desires of his worshippers. See what he's saying? Unless we keep looking to the Jesus we have in our Bibles... Well, the real Jesus gets smaller and smaller day by day. He becomes the misremembered Jesus or the reshaped Jesus according to our needs or our desires or indeed our fears. We need to keep coming back to the Bible to see Jesus as he really is. It's always good for us to be reminded. And there are three quick things for us to be reminded about Jesus from our verses today. Here's the first one. We've got this picture of Jesus, and the first thing is that he is our faithful, risen ruler. It's there. um, Oh, I've lost it. Uh, There in verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Jesus is the faithful witness. What does that mean? That means that during his earthly ministry, Jesus bore faithful witness as the very word of God, even unto death. By his perfect life, he perfectly revealed God's character to us. Now that's a bold claim, isn't it? But if you don't believe me, go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And as you do so, as you see Jesus, you will see God himself. He is the faithful witness. And Jesus being faithful in his witness even unto death means he's also the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead and remain alive to this day. It doesn't say he's the only, does it? It says he's the firstborn. And that's good news. He's the firstborn of many to rise from the dead. The Apostle Paul writes, By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. In a world where we live in the shadow of death, it's good to be reminded that Jesus has opened the way to eternal life. Jesus is the firstborn, not the only, from among the dead. But he's not only the faithful witness and the firstborn from among the dead, he is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Now, this is a theme that pops up again and again in the book of Revelation, where we see Jesus in all his glory. Towards the end of the book, he's described as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is, there is no thing or no one over or above Jesus. He is King over all, Lord over all. Everything is under his rule. Whether the kings of this world know it or not, 
whether the kings of this world acknowledge it or not. Domitian was a Roman Caesar in the late first century who ruled at the time when this letter was written. And Domitian was no friend to Christians. He'd ordered everyone to worship him as Lord instead of Jesus. When Christians refused, they'd be pressured to recant, to turn, to change their mind. And when they didn't, well, they would be killed. There's an amazing story from the early church where on one occasion, a local church minister is being persuaded to turn from Jesus, to worship Caesar as Lord. And in their mocking him, they ask this question, and where is your carpenter now? See, they see they don't deny that Jesus lived, but they see him only as a carpenter. Not as verse 5 tells us, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, it's unclear as to what happened to this man after he said these words, but his reply was stunning. He said, he is preparing a coffin for your emperor. It's a bold statement, isn't it? But it's the right perspective. He understands that each human Caesar will rise, but they will fall, they will die. There is only one ruler, one king of kings, one lord of lords, one firstborn from among the dead who is still alive today. And that is this Jesus who we see here. Earthly rulers come and go, kingdoms rise and fall, but Jesus is risen and reigns forever. He is our faithful risen ruler. He is also our loving rescuer. See, in verses 5 and 6, we're reminded what Jesus saved us from and what he saved us for. And it's really important we notice the tenses. Do you see how there it says he has... I've lost it. (laughs) I can't see it at all. I need to see my petition. There it is. To him who loves us and has freed us. Jesus loves us, present tense and has freed us, past tense, by his blood from all our sins. So our being set free was a one-off event in the past. But Jesus loving us continues to this day. Now that is a precious truth, isn't it? Sure, it's a a reminder to the original hearers, whatever troubles they are facing in Asia Minor, whatever their first century problems are, Jesus loves, present tense, them. Whatever troubles we are facing today, Jesus loves, present tense, us today. It is the greatest assurance of all if you're a follower of Jesus. He has freed you in the past and he loves you today. And if we take nothing else to heart this morning, please let it be this. Jesus loves us, present tense. He has freed us. He loves us. And should we ever doubt his love for us, well, we need only look to the lengths he went to in order to set us free. Johann Sebastian Bach was a a talented chap, and he put this much more poetically than I ever could. My priceless saviour, let me ask this question. When cross-nailed, you are so diminished. Say you yourself that all is finished. Have I, in fact, from death been freed? 
through your despair and desolation am I myself assured salvation. There all the world's salvation too. In your deep pain you speechless bled. Yet when you now just when you just now bowed your head, it seems in fact that yes, you said. When Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood, he set us free. He has done that in the past, one for us for all time. He loves us in the present. It's because of his great love for us that Jesus goes to those lengths to set us free. He loves us. He frees us from our sins. He frees us to serve. See, our being forgiven, our set free from the consequence of our sins, that would be wonderful enough. But Jesus does so much more. Verse 6, in language reminiscent of God's promises to his people back in Exodus, all Christian believers are now a kingdom and priests to serve. Just as the word saint is a term that can be applied to every Christian believer, so it is with priest. It's just a word that describes those who serve God and show him to others. And here we're reminded those whom Jesus saves, he calls to serve. He makes us priests. So we serve the one who bled for us in the past. We serve the one who loves us in the present. And chapters 2 and 3 in particular will help us think through what that looks like. We're always longing, aren't we, for practical tips. What does it look like to be a Christian? We will get to that in chapters 2 and 3. But let's not move too quickly past what we're seeing here of Jesus, the one who freed us, the one who loves us. No wonder John responds here in praise and glory. Look how he goes in verse 6. To him, to Jesus, be glory and power forever and ever. No wonder. John grasped something of Jesus' love for him, grasped something of what Jesus has freed him from and freed him for. John is in exile writing this, persecuted for being a follower of Jesus, and yet he can still praise him because he knows he's freed him, because he knows he loves him. Our getting getting carried away with Jesus is a good thing to do. Understanding what we know about him, who he is, what he's done for us, motivated by his love for us, well, that should always lead us to want to praise him. But I guess we'll know that at times, actually, we don't much feel like praising Jesus. Perhaps times when we pull up in the car and think, I'm off to church, I don't feel much like praising Jesus. Jesus. Well, at those times, we don't need to look inside ourselves and try to manufacture some excitement. We need to look to Jesus. We need to look at this Jesus who has been revealed to us in this book. I think you will have heard me say before that personally it took me a long time to grasp that following Jesus meant following him as my ruler as well as my rescuer, as my saviour and my lord. I was happy with the rescue bit. I was happy with the saviour bit. It took me a while to realise it meant following him also as my ruler, as my lord. And God was very patient with me and I think I get that now. But the final point this morning is the thing I still need reminding of more than anything else. It's there in verse 7. This Jesus, 
the risen ruler and rescuer when he's going to return. Jesus is coming back. This is where all of history is headed. Jesus returning in glory. And verse 7 makes it very clear to us that Jesus will come back and when he does, everyone will see him. His return, it will be supernatural. It'll be visible. It'll be universal and it'll be unstoppable. I was really challenged on this recently when I came across a lovely story about a children's home um, for kids with special needs in Kentucky in the US. It was years ago now, but a song had been written about them and their teacher and their home. It was called Fingertips and Noses. That's because ever since the students were taught about the return of Jesus, the school staff had struggled to keep the windows clean. That's because the children kept pressing their faces to the window, fingertips and noses, looking for Jesus to return. The book of Revelation, it doesn't tell us when Jesus will return. It really doesn't. But it does promise us that he will. The theme of Jesus' return, it runs throughout the book. It's how the book ends. Come, Lord Jesus. But all the while, between the now and the then, we are being encouraged to have longing eyes and expectant hearts waiting for Jesus to return. So let me leave you with a question to be asking yourself in the week ahead. What does the window to my heart look like? Am I pressing my fingertips and nose to the glass, eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus, this Jesus, our ruler and our rescuer, whom we will get to see face to face one day because he's promised to return. He's freed us, he loves us, and one day we will see him face to face. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads and have a moment's quiet. I'll lead us in a prayer and then we're going to sing together. To him who loves us and has freed us. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity we have over the next few weeks to begin to look at this great book of the Revelation, your Revelation. Pray that as we read it, we would be taking it to heart, that we might know your blessing. And we thank you that it paints such a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus for us this morning, reminding us that he is our ruler, reminding us that he is our rescuer, reminding us that he has freed us from our sins by his blood, that he loves us this day, and that one day he will return. As we take these things to heart, with the help of your Spirit, would we be quick to give you all the praise and glory you deserve. Amen. Amen.